Good morning. Welcome to GBC. Um, it's really great to have uh, been gathering this morning to praise the Son that we uh, serve as our Lord and King. I wonder what you would think if two pastors left straight after a service finished, running out the door at the end, it's immediately after a church service. I wonder what you, what you would conclude about that kind of a church. Well, Tony and I are going to do that this morning, unfortunately. Uh, it's not because we don't like you. It's not because we're trying to avoid you at all. Uh, we're actually just getting on a plane this afternoon and it takes off at about quarter past one. Um, and we're going over to Sydney for a conference. A lot of you guys have heard about Reach Australia. One of the things that they put on is a, is a yearly conference. And so it's a real privilege for Tony and I to be able to go over there uh, and to, to uh, be invested in and develop and grow as pastors and leaders at this church. So uh, just be aware of that that's why we're going to be racing off straight after the service um, and not any other reason other than that. Please pray for us as we go. Uh, but more than that, would you pray for what God might do for Tony and I, but also for other pastors and leaders around Australia as we gather at that conference. We're continuing our series this morning in Ephesians, the death of division uh, through the book of Ephesians, as I said. And this morning, we're going to read through the same passage that we read through last week, verses 1 through to 14 of chapter 1. And uh, we're going to only be looking at the final four verses uh, this morning. So why don't you read along with me as I read those uh, verses out. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1 to 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the, tr the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Our Father, we would be left in the dark unless you made known to us your plans, your purposes, 
and most precious to us, your gospel, the gospel of the Lord Jesus, who you sent into this world to die, to take away our sins, to rise again, conquering death and evil and the spiritual forces of this world. So, Father, please now, would you again reveal to us, make known to us, open the eyes of our hearts that we might grasp what it is that you have to say to us this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The bodies that we live in are fascinating machines. There are millions of cells, each carrying out their particular functions, and they're all ordered and organized into organs and systems that enable our bodies to carry out those functions. When you think about it, it's a really odd experience. Complex operations are going on within our bodies every moment of our existence, and yet largely we go by completely unaware of what's going on beneath the surface. Most of our body's functions remain hidden and secret. When I was a uni student, I studied some human biology units. And I was made to participate in these tutorials that involved lab coats and gloves as we explored the human bodies on cadavers. If you're unaware, a cadaver is a deceased body used for scientific discovery and research. And it's quite a full-on experience. I had the stomach for it back then, but I reckon I've lost it. I don't cope very well with blood and needles at the moment. But popping the bonnet, so to speak, on the human body is what it took for what was hidden and secret to become known and appreciated. There are many things that are hidden in our universe, aren't there? Not just the human body, but there's all of these hidden secrets in our universe. And they create this curiosity and intrigue within us. Another example is black holes. It's one of the hidden secrets of our universe. What is it? Why do they exist? How do they exist? There's a documentary on Netflix that I've got my eye on that will give you all the answers to those questions, I'm sure. And it's these hidden secrets about our universe that actually have an effect of drawing us in. We want to see into the inner chambers of the greatest secrets of our universe, don't we? And this morning, we get to do exactly that. We get to peek into one of the great secrets of spiritual life. It's the secret of what is going on when someone becomes a Christian. Why is it happening? How is it happening? Who's causing it to happen? When does it happen? And the, reasons, the reason it's a secret is because our experience of life, becoming a Christian, appears to be, on the surface, a fairly ordinary event. Someone investigates the Christian faith, maybe a friend tells them about Jesus, and they become to mind that they decide that it's not only true, but this Christianity thing is good, and they decide to trust Jesus and live for him instead of for themselves. Seems a fairly ordinary order of events. But our passage this morning is going to pop the bonnet, so to speak. 
on what it is that's actually happening when someone becomes a Christian. And friends, you, you really have to see this. If you can grasp what's in our passage this morning and, and hear what God is speaking to us through it, there is supreme joy and fulfillment available for our souls. You'll remember from last week, won't you, that our passage is one long sentence, all the way from verse 3 through to verse 14. Paul, the writer of Ephesians, spills over with joy-filled praise to the glory of God. Four times he gives expression to the praise and adoration of God. You'll see them there on the screen. And we heard that quote from C.S. Lewis last week about the link between joy and praise. I want to throw another one at you. Just so you you don't think it's just C.S. Lewis or it's just something that I'm saying, here's a quote from J.I. Packer. He says this, The to and fro of seeing glory in God and giving glory to God is the true fulfillment of human nature at its heart. And it brings supreme joy to humanity, just as it does to God. That's what's in store for us this morning. That's what's in store in this passage. That's what's in store as we pop the bonnet on what is actually happening when someone becomes a Christian. We will see something glorious. And with hearts full of joy and adoration, we will spill over in giving glory to our God. We're going to be doing the to and froing of glory seeing and glory giving. So let's get into it. Verse 13 tells us that we're talking about the moment someone becomes a Christian, when someone hears the gospel of salvation and believes in Jesus. But the passage pops the bonnet on that as well. And we discover that there is one God who exists in three persons, the Holy Trinity is intimately involved in that process. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. See, it's not just a work of a person deciding to become a Christian. It's not less than that either, you'll notice. But it's cosmically more. Let's have a look. Verse 11 points us to the work of God the Father. It tells us he has predestined us according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. This one verse shows us that God blows our little brains. God the Father is working all things. And all things are being worked out by him in exact accordance with his will. Each and every atom, each and every galaxy. And think for a moment, just think about the trees that are just outside. Every single leaf that falls from a tree. The way that it dances in the wind and moves smoothly towards its landing on the ground. Every move of that leaf is sovereignly determined by God. He is working all things in accordance with his will. 
And these verses are telling us that it's this God who predestines us for salvation. Last week we read in Ephesians 1 verse 4, he says this, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. You were chosen and predestined for salvation before God created the world. Brenton was right this morning that 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 is a hard doctrine and concept to grasp. You may even feel yourself pushing against it and thinking, no, that can't be right, that God predestines and sovereignly ordains all things. How can that be? It does raise a lot of questions. And that's why Tony and I are racing off this morning straight after the service. Um, Not quite, just a joke. Um, But it is a doctrine in the Christian faith that takes time to grasp, especially in our culture that values personal freedom so highly. It's not the time to answer all the questions that are raised by this complex doctrine, but don't think that that means your questions are invalid. Please ask them. Please wrestle with this doctrine because it is a significant one in the Christian faith. But there is one thing that's helped me with not necessarily understanding it, but something that's helped me see how it's actually a good doctrine is this. That if God did not predestine people for salvation, then no one would be saved. Then I wouldn't be saved. Let's think about it for a moment. God is the creator and sustainer of the entire universe. If he decides to stop working all things and sustaining all things, then all things would cease to exist in an instant. We would not only not stand a chance of being saved, but we would cease to exist completely. But here's where it's really a great doctrine. If we flip that, and we say, if God has predestined you and chosen you for salvation, then there is nothing that can be done to stop that from happening. There is nothing that can get in the way of you being saved. Can you see how good that is? We're not crying out to God with an empty hope about whether he's going to choose us or not. Will he save me? No, he's chosen me before the foundation of the world. So it's a hard concept to grasp. It's one that's worth pursuing and thinking about and asking questions. And it's also one of those doctrines that we don't all need to agree on. It's one where there is freedom to have different opinions and views on this. Of course, Scripture is our, is our rule and our authority on this. But we, there is a room for difference in how we come to conclusions about it. So the Father has predestined us for salvation. And our salvation, secondly comes to us in Christ. Three times the phrase in him is used in our passage. And at the start of verse 11, sorry, once at the start of verse 11, twice in verse 13, our salvation is accomplished 
in him. If you look up at verse 7, one that we looked at uh, last week, we read that our redemption comes through his blood. I wonder if you've ever noticed how sports fans speak. They use first-person uh, first pronouns when they speak about their team's performance. We played so hard. I can't believe we lost to them. That one's going to really hurt us. You start to question whether they actually realize they're not part of the team or not. Um, but really, it's part of the beauty of being a fan in sport, isn't it? You feel like you're really and actually involved in the game. And you feel the ups and the downs of the game as though they were your ups and downs. And of course, if your team loses, then you really feel the loss. But when your team wins, you really feel the win. That's what it's like with Jesus. We, we really do just sit on the couch. And we see how Jesus accomplishes our salvation through his blood. And by faith, we are united to him. His victory over sin and death really does become our victory over sin and death. And so our salvation is not only predestined by the Father, so our salvation is accomplished by the Son. The work is finished in Him. As we put our faith and trust in Him, that work of accomplished salvation is applied to us. It is a finished and accomplished work. Our salvation is predestined by the Father, it's accomplished by the Son, and finally it is sealed by the Holy Spirit. From the end of verse 13, it says this, You are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. A few things to notice. It's at the moment that someone becomes a Christian that the Holy Spirit descends and enters into the life of the believer. There is no delay. An immediate presence of the Holy Spirit in every person that has faith in Christ. Notice, secondly, that it's the language of sealing that's used here. Sealing is an, Im an image that communicates ownership and protection. And God the Spirit is doing exactly that. He marks you out as God's very own. He marks you to be one that God will protect. Verse 14 tells us that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. In other words, you're not the one who guarantees your own entrance into eternal life. That's not your work. It's God's work. Who is it that guarantees your entrance into eternal life with God? Well, it's not you. It's the Holy Spirit that comes into your life. He is the guarantee of your salvation. And what is this inheritance? 
Well, it has to do with the possession there that comes in verse 14. The ESV translates this verse to say that we acquire the possession. So it's a possession that as Christians on the final day, we will acquire. But most of your Bibles should may have a footnote that will communicate that we don't receive the inheritance or the possession, but that we are the possession. Have a look on the screen and you'll see the two different ways that it's translated. The top one is the ESV uh, translation. The second one is the footnote. Until God redeems his possession to the praise of his glory. It could actually go either way on this one when we think about the grammar. But I think a stronger case can be made for what's in the footnote. That we are the possession. For one... The word redemption is used in this verse. And it's a word that's always used of God redeeming people to himself rather than people redeeming things to themselves. So in my mind, uh, the footnote actually makes more sense here and will continue as though that's the case. Although that's another one where there is definitely room for disagreement. So what is it that the Holy Spirit is guaranteeing to us? What's the inheritance? It's that God will redeem his possession. That at the end of history, the time that all of history is moving towards is a time when God will get to inherit and receive his possession. The Bible describes that future day in a few different ways. It uses the language of a new creation, of a a new heaven and a new earth. It also uses the language of a a wedding ceremony, of Christ being uh, the bridegroom and the church being the bride and Jesus taking the church to himself. It also uses a picture of universal peace. But here we get an image of God redeeming his own possession. I can remember when I first encountered this idea. And more than anything in the book of Ephesians, this is shocking. It's a shock. Paul is actually describes us as God's possession. That the final day of history will be a glorious moment for God. Not just for us. Because it will be the day that God redeems to himself his very own treasured possession. We are God's inheritance. We are what God delights in. We are the treasure that God, in sending his son to the world, was pursuing. There was an article put out by the BBC about a month ago. It was about a discovery made by a man in, Victoria, in the Victoria's gold, Victorian goldfields. A man wearing a large backpack walked into, walked into the prospecting store in Geelong, which is about an hour southwest of Melbourne. A prospecting store is where you can bring gold nuggets, bring little bits that you found, and you get them evaluated and get money for them. And normally the people who would come in had uh, little bits and pieces things that weren't particularly impressive. Or they had things that looked like gold and were really hoping was gold, 
but in fact was not. But this man, who just used a budget metal detector as he had searched for this uh, gold, pulled out of his backpack a 2.4 kilo nugget of gold. He said, you reckon that's, that's $10,000, surely, he said to the man. But the store owner said to him, no, this thing's worth $240,000. Now that is a treasured possession. I bet he made sure no one touched his gold. I bet he looked at it with excitement and joy and anticipation of what this thing was going to give him. It's that rock that was what he wanted more than anything. And that's what it's like with God and us. Now, $240,000 rock, you put that into a mortgage and it's gone. Uh, you don't see it ever again. But God has made us to be his treasured possession. The final day of history will be that God redeems us and makes us his own finally and completely. And it's that that the Holy Spirit is guaranteeing in us. So, we've popped the hood, so to speak. God the Father predestined us for salvation. The Son accomplishes our salvation. And the Holy Spirit has sealed us for salvation. And by the way, you know what that means? It means that every single person's story of how they became a Christian is both miraculous and spectacular. Yeah, sure, some do look more revolutionary from one angle. They go from living one particular lifestyle that was maybe particularly sinful and obviously sinful, and then they turn completely around and it looks like a radical transformation in their life, and praise God that that happens. Praise God that God rescues people not just from their death, their, their dead spiritual life, but also saves them from their sinful behavior. But in reality, every story of someone becoming a Christian is the unified work of the Holy Trinity. The one God, creator and sustainer of the universe, saves people and makes them his very own. That's God's activity in salvation. And yet our passage also tells us that there's also human activity in salvation, isn't there? Verse 13 tells us that people are saved when they hear and believe the gospel. This is the standard way that people are saved. They hear the message of the gospel, the message about how God is the creator of all things. And that although God generously blessed humanity, humanity rebelled and became dead in their sin. But in his great love for the world, God sent his son, the Lord Jesus, to die on the cross to take away our sin and to rise again, conquering over every spiritual enemy to give us life forevermore. That's the message that people hear 
and they evaluate that message, they consider what it says, they weigh it up and they think it over and what it means for their life. And as they come to see the message that it's not only true, but it's also good and wonderful, they believe. They decide to give their lives to Jesus and they commit to live for him with their lives. See, it's a strong view of the sovereignty of God in salvation. A view that God is actually the one who chooses and does everything necessary to save us does not mean that we do not make a real decision in becoming a Christian. In fact, a better way to think of it is say that God works through our hearing and believing and deciding to become a Christian to save us. There's a particular diagram that's helpful to see in, in getting your head around this. <clears throat> and it's this. This is one half of the diagram. God is the one who works all things in accordance with the purpose of his will. Every leaf that falls from the tree, everything in the universe, big or small, every galaxy and every molecule, God is working all things in accordance with the purpose of his will. And included in that category is our hearing and believing and decision to become a Christian. These things are not mutually exclusive. It's not an either-or, but it's a both. And there's a particular ordering to it as well in that God is the sovereign ruler of all things who sovereignly directs not just the universe, but each one of us as well. Trying to piece these two uh, realities that we see in Scripture together is actually quite a complex thing, and people will land on that differently. But this is the way that I've found to be most helpful and most clear. Um, and so I hope it's helpful and clear to you also. This has two really significant implications for us. The first one is in our evangelism. This is one of the passages in the Bible that actually gives us confidence to tell us about Jesus. See, God works through the proclamation of the gospel. God works through people hearing and believing the news about Jesus. So, let's do it. Let's be a church that holds out the gospel to the world around us unceasingly. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. God promises to work through the gospel in this world. So let's be a church that's on about holding out the gospel to the world. God will work through it to save people. And secondly... A second really helpful implication of this is this. That there are times when we ask ourselves the question, am I really saved? Was my conversion legitimate? Has God really predestined me for salvation? Well, how would verse 13 answer that? It tells us that if we have heard the gospel, 
the news of the death and resurrection of Jesus and have believed in him, then we are his. And goodness, it doesn't matter if you feel like a particularly weak Christian or, or perhaps you feel like someone who doesn't quite meet the standard of what you see of others at church. The question is, have you heard and believed the gospel? If your answer to that question is yes, then the one creating and sustaining the universe, the triune God of the universe, has put his seal on you. You are his. Your grip of faith may feel particularly weak, but that doesn't mean God's grip of you is, is weak at all. His grip on your life never wavers. You are his. So let's bring this to a close. Where does this really land for us? I think this passage wants to speak to our anxious hearts and convict us and convince us that we can rest secure in God. What have we learnt? What have we seen as we've popped the hood on our salvation that when God saves us, his whole being has enveloped us in himself. We were chosen from before the foundation of the universe. Our salvation is accomplished by the Lord Jesus. And we were sealed by the Holy Spirit, marked out as God's very own possession for him to protect. You, we are God's treasured possession. You can rest secure and safe. Are you anxious? Has the latest interest rate rise got you bothered? Is there someone you're worried about facing back at school or work or uni? Or is there a particular diagnosis you've just received or, worried, or you're worried about receiving? Is there a serious family or relational uh, conflict that you're navigating? Does your world seem like it's about to crumble? Jesus said these words, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. Did you hear Jesus' words there? Fear not. You are his. Let's pray and thank God. Saviour. Father, as we hear these words in your passage, yes, there are things that 
uh, tricky to grasp and comprehend. So, Father, please continue to help us ask questions and to get clarity on that. But, Father, please help us not to miss the great blessing that we see here. That you, Father, predestined us for salvation from before the foundation of the world. Your Son accomplished our salvation fully and completely. And your Spirit has been entered into our lives and has become a seal on us. And Father, we rest secure knowing you. We rest secure knowing that we are yours and that you have saved us. Father, no doubt there are complicated life situations among us and things that will cause us anxiety that don't have a quick and easy fix. But Father, at the foundation, we come to you and we say that we trust you. We trust you. And Father, we bring this before you in Jesus' name. Amen.